0: Two, two Swing a long Deep left. On! Welcome in to another Baseball America podcast. I'm Kyle Glazer. It's so, 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 so good to be back with you all. Uh, it's been a little bit inconsistent here with the 4th of July holiday, midseason updates. Things are definitely getting crazy here at BA. We've got the Futures game coming up this week. We have the draft coming up this week. This is certainly our busiest time of year. But we are here to break down the midseason top 100 prospects, who jumped on, who fell off, who rose, who fell, and ultimately just kind of what we've seen throughout the minor league season this year. We're at roughly the midpoint. A couple leagues were past the midpoint, but still a good time as any to take stock of where we are. To do that, I am joined by Jeff Ponce. Jeff, first and foremost, how the heck is it July already? I've been thinking about that. Like I don't (laughs) know how we got here already.
1: Yeah, I know. I was looking at the calendar yesterday trying to plan out my next couple of weeks. We've got the Futurist game coming up. Uh, I have the Cape Cod League going on over here, which is, I would say, one of the more prospect-centric times in the calendar here in New England where I can catch a lot of minor league games, but I have a heavy concentration of players who you know, are going to be on these top 30 lists for a lot of years. Um and sometimes I think the most valuable looks are the guys in you know the, the maybe ten to thirty range that go you know after round three in the draft that could be the guys that pop and you're like hey yeah you know I saw the bat speed here I saw this I saw that I remember you know Casey Schmidt being kind of one of those guys um, but yeah I mean it's uh, it's a crazy time of year and you know in the midst of all this we have to do some of our most important uh, work in terms of the the updated top thirties in the midseason. And it's really all the reporting we've gotten from the first half of the season. And then the same subsequently for the top 100 list. And our top 30 top lists, of course, feed our top 100 lists. Uh, so it's an involved process, plus all the other projects that we have our hands and want to work on, including the draft and just articles that we want to write, things we find interesting. So it's like every day I feel like I'm writing two different things right
0: now. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, it's, it's a fun time and it's a busy time. Uh, first and foremost, if you haven't checked out the Mid-Season Top 100 you can do so now. It's up at baseballamerica.com. It will also be in the next issue of Baseball America. We're updating the top 30s for every team, the midseason top 30 updates. Those are dropping tomorrow as of this recording. It'll be on Tuesday, July 12th. Those are dropping. We have a lot of content coming out around that. Why guys moved on or off their top thirty lists. And on top of all that, again, futures game, draft, I'll be covering the home run derby and the all-star game like I do every year. So It's a busy time, but it's a great time in the baseball calendar, and uh, yeah, like I was saying, I think especially after 2020, which was the longest year ever, and 2021 felt pretty long too. 2022 is zipping by, and uh, it's hard to believe we're already at midseason, but it's a good thing for sure. Jeff, as we dive into the midseason top 100, before we kind of get into some player breakdowns, the feedback we were getting, why guys moved on or off, one of the things that really jumped out as we began this process and then... Really just kind of became magnified as we continue to source feedback from front office officials, scouting executives, all around the game. Is once the big leaguers graduate, so you know, the Riley Greens, the Shane Bobs, the Gabriel Moreno's, all the guys who are prospect eligible but are in the major leagues and will graduate soon, there really is not a clear cut number one prospect in the minors waiting behind them. And we see this sometimes. Everything in life is cyclical, and that includes prospect quality. I remember my first year at BA doing a top 100 was in 2017. And that year, we were debating between Andrew Benintendi and Yuan Moncada. And those were two guys who you realize were good ball players, but neither of those guys you really wanted to put sevens on. Neither of them projected to be franchise-caliber great players. And that's borne out in their big league careers. Whereas the very next year, you had... Ronald Acuna, Shohei Ohtani, and Vladimir Guerrero Jr. We were debating between at the top with guys like Fernando Tatis and Bo Bichette and Eloy Jimenez behind them. So it's just this incredible crop where all three of those guys, you know, are 70, 75 grade players. You just have to figure out which one do you like. We kind of had that at the beginning of this year with Adley Rutschman, Julio Rodriguez, and in my opinion, to a lesser degree, Bobby Witt. Three guys who projected to be, you know, sevens or higher potential franchise caliber guys. But they've graduated, and and once this next wave wave of guys graduates too, it's kind of more in that Benintendi Moncada world where you look at the prospects left, and it's a lot of guys who you put sixes on or 65s on who are very good players. Those are all-star grades, but there's not anyone that jumps out as a franchise type of guy, at least anyone in the upper levels who you can really feel confident about. As you were kind of looking through the top 100, I know know, we talked about a lot as a staff that once the the big leaguers graduate, you know, sorting out who's number one, it's a difficult exercise and there's not a clear cut answer. And to be frank, none of them really project to be franchise caliber superstars.
1: Yeah, I think, you know, internally, you know, our conversations, certainly when we got on, you know, did our scrum with the team and sort of, you know, went through, spot by spot and rank this list um there were differing opinions on who could be number one if we remove the major leaguers who could be number one um you know there were some folks i think i'm probably technically in the corbin carol, carol camp um had grayson rodriguez been healthy and in, in the minor leagues and pitching i think that there's probably a chance that you know there's a conversation that he could go on, though I know that there's many on the staff that are adverse to ranking a pitcher 1-1. One, one. I totally get it. So yeah, it's going to be interesting to see you know, um, who develops and who sort of takes that spot in the coming year.
0: Yeah, Grayson Rodriguez is the tricky one because that's the guy where people do see, yeah, this is a 70-grade caliber pitcher. This is a guy who will be a number one or number two. The stuff is there. The physicality is there. We started to see the durability, but he's hurt and ranking pitchers is incredibly risky and ranking injured pitchers is incredibly risky. Even if it's a relatively minor injury in the grand scheme of things, it's still just something that um, when you look back at historical outcomes, very rarely does that guy actually have the single best career of any and every prospect in the minors. Um, But you look at some of these other guys and you mentioned Corbin Carroll, Francisco Alvarez was also in the conversation. And to be clear, these are really good players. Again, future all-stars, people think the world of them. Um, But again, when you look at what is their ultimate outcome, what do they project to be in the majors, no one can quite go to a 70 on them. Again, whereas Julio Rodriguez, Adley Rutschman, it was no question they were 70s. The question is, could you go 80? Ultimately, we did not. And Bobby Wood as well. There was a lot of sense that he's a 70-grade player, even though he's still going through some things in terms of his development, the learning curve of the major leagues. Again, there's just not that guy left, at least someone in the upper levels who has proven that they can translate their tools into skills and you feel really good about it. And we'll get to some of the younger, raw guys uh, later on. But Jeff, you mentioned you kind of fall on the side of Corbin Carroll. For you, what puts Carroll ahead as the best prospect still remaining in the minor leagues? I
1: think it's, you know, the problem with Carroll is – you make the the, the argument, which I will, for sort of the all-around skill set that he can impact the game in a variety of ways. Um, You know, this is a guy that can hit for power. You know, he gets on base at a really high clip. He makes good swing decisions. Um, He hits for a high average. Um, You know, he projects to have defensive value. Now, he may not be an everyday center fielder, um but he's somebody that i think you're you're confident at least throwing in the outfield and having him get you know everyday playing time out there um can run a little bit as well um you know that's always been part of his game and something that we have projected out He's not the biggest guy we obviously don't have a super long track record and you know the the health obviously is a little murky uh when a guy blows himself out (laughs) hitting a homer like he did last year but we strip that stuff away and, and just sort of look at the performance on the field this year. Um you know I think he's been the, the best prospect um in the minors. So you know that is still eligible for the list. So he's just the guy that I would normally lean toward because he has that all around value. But I, I do think that you could probably make a, a a case that he is similar in some ways as a player to Andrew Benintendi um, though there might be a little bit um, more raw juice there ultimately and a little bit more impact across the board. But, you know, he could be a guy that settles in as maybe a high teens to 20s home, or home run guy, you know, if you're not super optimistic on the power, I'm more optimistic than that on the power, you know, could impact the game with his legs, play a few different outfield positions, but isn't really a center fielder, gets on base at a high clip, you um, so I could see that, you know, sort of coming to fruition if he doesn't sort of max out, but the fact that he's as young as he is, um, you know, just turn, um, t- turning 22 in, in a couple of weeks or a month or so. Um, I just like Carol and the overall player there left-handed hitting, um, you know, with some juice on base ability. Um, you know, I'll take the fact that there's been some trade of, uh, contact for strikeouts but not in a really meaningful way at this point
0: he's a really good player and again the conversation isn't you know whether or not these guys are good players we're talking about guys who are going to be you know top five prospects in baseball again all-star ceilings it's just does it get to the superstar ceiling that you typically see from a number one overall prospect and again um he's really really good but you mentioned the andrew benintendi comparison and that just keeps coming up and one of the things that we've seen with Andrew Benintendi is he's had a perfectly fine career. He's been a good player. He was BA's number one overall prospect in 2017. And looking back, was he the single best player out of that entire prospect group when we look back on him? the answer is no. And that's where I think there's just a little bit of hesitation just talking to evaluators around the game. Again, really good player. Is it a 70 hitter? Maybe not. They see that 266 average away from Amarillo. Defense is plenty good, speed's plenty good, and he's incredibly smart. He's got all the mental aptitude you want. He'll make adjustments, he'll learn, he'll put himself in good situations. Again, really good player and and an argument for number one, but I did find it interesting that no one could quite pull that trigger. Um, And the Francisco Alvarez is getting a lot of love. Uh, Some of that is the product of being a, a Mets prospect. Really, really, really impressive in a lot of ways. I wrote about him at last year's Futures game just tremendous strength and power. It's pretty, pretty impressive. The concern is he's just a very, very, very big boy at 20 years old. And what's that going to look like? Um, The defensive reviews this year already have kind of gone backwards. The the defense is not getting the best reviews. There's some questions there we're starting to see. And, And the other thing, again, is we have seen more advanced pitchers And again, he's really young, but the power's there. The average isn't really where you want to see. And again, people talk about the importance of batting average in the majors, and that's fine, and that slash line looks really good if it's a major league slash line. In the minor leagues, batting average is the single biggest predictor of success. That consistent contact is the most important thing because power will come later. And when you see 268, very rarely does that become someone who hits frequently enough to be – a player on the caliber of what you expect from a number one overall prospect, what Ronald Acuna Jr. has produced, what Vladimir Guerrero Jr. has produced, what Ronder Franco showed he could produce last year. He's been struggling this year. Um, you know, Chris Bryant, Corey Seager, the, the numbers are bigger and it's important. So again, I, I think it's something where it really in a lot of ways does come down to grace from Rodriguez, Corbin Carroll, and Francisco Alvarez. And each of them, it's like, if Rodriguez was healthy, he'd be the guy, but there's pitcher risk. Carolyn Alvarez, it's a lot of, these guys are really good. Again, I can't emphasize this enough. Potential future all-stars, but it's more of that 60, 65 grade player than that 70, 75 grade player. And that makes it tough to find a, a number one prospect among this group unless you want to get really, really, really bold and pick the guys in low A. And Jeff, I want to get to that here where there are players you could put sevens on, but they are very far away. And we can talk a little bit about why You don't jump them up yet. Uh, The two guys that really kind of fit that mold are Jordan Lawler and Jackson Churio. Uh, Lawler was, at least in BA's rankings, the top player in last year's draft class, fell to number six overall to the D-backs, was torching Loewe Visalia, just got promoted up to high in Hillsborough, and Jackson Churio was one of the top international signees in the 2021 international signing class, Brewer's center fielder. He got up to low A this year as an 18-year-old and has been impressing everyone. Jeff, first and foremost, uh, Lawler and Churio, what have been your impressions of of these two? I I can talk a lot about Lawler. I've seen him a bunch. But um, just overall, I mean, what have been your thoughts? And I'll just come out and say it. There's a very real scenario where one of these guys is the number one prospect in baseball within the next year or two.
1: Yeah, I I think that... um... You know, when you look back, and it was the thing that was kind of in my mind when you were talking about those, you know, Ben and years, it was ranking prospects, but not at Baseball America at that time. Um, it's one of those things I always look back on, and it's like you had three or four guys who probably were 70s, but they were just at that point in their career where it would have been extremely bold without, you know, having a really, really strong foundational understanding of who they were as players to push them up into the top five. I remember thinking that like when the big jump happened with Franco. Um, but of course, you know, it was a little different. I think the feedback from you guys that at that point was driving a lot of the market. Um, Cause he was a guy that was kind of like a name there. One knew from a lot of Ben's writing um, that went, you know, from like a back end the top 100 guy to like 10 on everyone's list, like within a week. Um, and I think Churio is similar in the sense that, you know, the feedback once he came Stateside um, earlier this spring, you know, it, it came in fast and, and pretty fierce. Um, what we were hearing were sixes and sevens and in internal grades. He was performing. Um, you know, I should probably, I should tap in Josh Norris to bless this track, but um, <laughs> you know, Josh was out at the ballpark seeing him like every night and the feedback he was getting, he does, you know, he's a great reporter and does a great job of just talking to a wide variety of sources with, you know, varying opinions. And it seemed like pretty universally everybody (laughs) was coming back with incredibly high grades and then everyone else in the team as they were sort of, you know, their contacts were seeing Churio for series we were getting a lot of the same feedback. And I know just talking to other reporters, et cetera, they're getting a lot of the same stuff. So he seems like the guy that if he continues to perform, gets his jump up the high A at some point, he's gonna be the guy that really explodes uh, on, these, on lists just across the board, not just ours, you know, in, in the coming uh, year. I think he's the guy that, if I had to pick a potential future number one prospect off of this list right now, that isn't obviously number one, uh, it would be Churio. I think that Churio is potentially, you know, the top prospect in baseball and, and in a meaningful way, you know, in a Wander Franco, Ronald Lacuna Jr., Vlad Guerrero Jr. kind of way where it's four year plus. And, um, you know, he gets notoriety prior to ever stepping foot in a Major League Baseball throw.
0: He's certainly come out very, very loud this year in his uh, stateside debut. Uh, Even back in minor league spring training, I was getting some reviews. Hey, this guy's really showing off uh, out in Maryvale. Uh, With Jordan Lawler, one of the things that's just so impressive is just how twitchy and explosive and athletic he is. I mean, there are some balls where he wasn't even squaring them up, but just how explosively he rotates the strength in his hands and his wrists. Balls were still flying off. And one of the biggest things with him that was just super, super impressive was he really elevated his gameplay once the game began. You know, in terms of, you know, pregame, you know, BP's just fine. And to be honest, we were watching him just take some ground balls pregame, and it was actually a little bit rough. I actually was like, huh, this is not great. I was a little bit concerned with the hands and the way everything moved. Once the game started, he was lights out. Making every play, stealing bases, hitting balls hard to all fields, working counts, and even when he did swing and miss at times, he always adjusted within the at bat. There were times he would swing a miss against 87, 88. He'd miss a pitch or two, but he didn't strike out. He was able to make an adjustment, come back, and drive that same pitch, the very next pitch. Just a really, really impressive young player. So people are hearing this and saying, okay, if this is their potential, why aren't they number one now? Because ultimately we're ranking their long-term potential. The answer is the pitching in low A is ungodly atrocious this year and i have talked about this i've written about this with the reorganization of the minors now that we've had a year of it and we're in the second year of it and things have started to settle a little bit more the one constant has been there are so 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 many pitchers who are in low a that otherwise would have been in advanced rookie leagues or the short season a leagues and they are not ready to be in full season ball And so these guys are seeing a lot of either 88 to 91 that's flat with no good breaking ball, or they're seeing a lot of 96 to 98 from guys who have absolutely no idea where it's going, or guys who have a breaking ball but no fastball. The second you have two pitches you can throw for strikes, you're up to high right now. It's there you're seeing a lot of guys who have one pitch and that one pitch a lot of times ain't that great. So one of the things I've talked about with evaluators, both internal and external, I remember talking to some high-ranking d officials who, of course, are super excited about Lawler, love him, have all the best things in the world to say about him. And even they're like, yeah, we need to see what happens in high A because that's where it's going to get real. The pitching at those levels is just so bad right now. We can project, hey, you look at the bat speed, you look at the swing path, you look at the approach, we think he'll be able to hit, you know, 96 on the corner, but you never really know until they see it or until they've done it. And right now it's just such a question of, okay, will these tools translate into skills? That's always a huge question and something that everyone struggles with when projecting young players, but it is especially acute right now at the low A levels. And even the evaluators who love and believe in both of these guys, they can't speak with any conviction right now because even they acknowledge the pitching they're facing is utterly horrendous by the standards of full-season ball.
1: Yeah, I you know, I think that's a big portion of it as well. I mean, I, you know, I think with someone like Churio, Waller um, to a lesser, lesser extent, because he was a little bit older for the high school class as well, like Churio is so young that this guy, uh, would
0: he be a 2023 draft prospect? Or would he be uh, 20- uh, it's March, 2004. So he would be 2022. Yeah. So
1: he would be draft eligible this year and he's playing
0: in a ball and, you know, is
1: hitting and performing at the level he is. So like, I, I, I think I, I don't necessarily hold the pitching against him as much because he was stateside or, you know, playing in the Dominican Republic or Venezuela, I mean, he's going to, he's not going to see that level of pitching. Well, keep
0: in mind, we are talking about two guys who rank in our top 20 prospects, but I think yeah. just as if there was someone, the, the guy who's going to go number one overall in this year's draft, for example, Drew Jones, and you could argue Jackson Churro would go number one overall in this year's draft if you're eligible, would exactly. not be the number one prospect in baseball right away. So that's what we're talking about here yeah, again. Exactly. You know, top 20. Absolutely. Number one, you can't pull that trigger yet because you need to see how it plays against better competition. That's sort of the the lines we're talking about here.
1: Yeah, but yeah, I agree. I mean, you know, you've you've mentioned the quality and sort of cited some of it in the conversations you've had. Um, I've seen less low A since the beginning of the season. I've seen more double A. You're very
0: lucky. You are very some lucky. Some it is A. bad. Yeah. I, I, I miss, it. I miss the high A Cali. I will say that publicly. I miss the high A Cali a lot. I
1: also saw the early season Dunedin and Fort Myers pitching staffs in my uh, low A looks. So if you look at some of the names that were on those uh, uh, rosters at that point in time, I didn't too, do too bad in terms of the arms that I saw uh, when I was in low A because they're still performing in high A a lot. Some of them are in double A, but um yeah, so, you know, I, I totally agree there. And I think that they're really exciting, but you, you do have to, you know, factor in risk and all the things that could potentially happen. Um, we were aggressive and I think sort of made our statement as to what our feedback is and uh, internally, you know, how, how these guys end up ranking out.
0: Exactly. And I, I really want to emphasize all these guys we just talked about, you know, we kind of talked about them, why aren't they number one. All these guys are top 20 prospects in baseball. In the case of Carroll, Alvarez, Rodriguez, they're top seven. And we talk about, again, Lawler and Churio are in the 10 to 20 range with Mm -hmm. very much arrows up next to them. And all these guys, again, scouts are putting sixes and sevens on them, big numbers. So again, it's just about, okay, what prevents them from being number one? But these are all really good prospects who have a case for number one and could be number one in the near future. All right, Jeff, now that we've kind of broken down number one and that dilemma and what that's all going to look like, we're going to dive into some of the bigger risers, the bigger fallers, and and some of what we expect here maybe in the second half of the season. First, we're going to take a quick
2: break and hear from our sponsors. We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed.
1: What's so special about Hero Bread's soft, fluffy, and delicious breads, buns, and tortillas? These ultra low net carb baked goods contain zero sugar, fewer calories, and more protein than the leading brands, and are high in fiber to support gut health. Shop now at hero.co.
0: Welcome back to the Baseball America Midseason Top 100 Prospects Podcast. I'm Kyle Glazer, joined again by Jeff Ponce. All right, Jeff, we talked a little bit about the debate for number one and some of the reasons for against certain players and how there isn't really a clear cut. There are some players who are very clearly rising, though, as well as a couple players who are very clearly falling just in terms of what their futures in the major leagues look like because again that's what we're trying to measure here with top 100 lists it's not trade value it's not prospect value it's who will be the best major leaguers one of the biggest risers is Gunnar henderson with the orioles uh he was the first pick of the second round a few years ago a big part of the orioles rebuild and adley rutchman and grayson rodriguez have deservedly gotten a lot of the talk as the top two prospects in that system but there's been some debate over who's number three. At times, it looked like D.L. Hall. People have been very excited about Kobe Mayo and Jordan Westberg. But Gunnar Henderson, with his performance this year, has really solidified himself as very clearly number three in the Orioles system, but also a top 10 prospect in all of baseball. You've written about Gunnar a lot in the past. You've seen him a lot in the past. What, for you, makes Gunnar so special? And, and I mean, we're really hearing it from everyone, scouts, but just in terms of your own yeah. looks, what about Gunnar Henderson stands out and has helped him really separate?
1: This is one of the few times where I feel like I, I was I was fairly on point. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> but no, um, you know, I think the thing with Henderson is it's just a really unusual combination of elite swing decisions, which I think has driven the profile for a long time. Couple that with, plus, plus raw power, just in terms of what he can do. Um, the game numbers are starting to back that a lot more. But when you look at some of the exit velocities, you watch one of his batting practices, it's there. He's always had insane bat speed and just juice. But now he's taken significant steps forward as a contact hitter. His bat-to-ball skills have you know, risen to an above-average level, um, bordering, Almost on plus, and I think when you consider all the other things that he does when you're grading out a hit tool, um, just beyond the bat-to-ball skills and the ability to make contact, the swing decisions, the stuff that he doesn't swing at. um, And he's one of those guys where I think it's pretty clear when you watch a good sample of his at-bats, 15 to 20 at-bats, you get a really good feel that he's not just passive in a certain part of the plate He's not one of these guys that just cuts the plate in half, just doesn't touch anything in the outer half and waits to get mistakes in the inner half to crush to his pull side. He's somebody that recognizes pitches and knows what's coming and what he needs to do, whether it's sit back or, you know, catch something out front, whatever it is. Um, He just does things at the plate that I don't see every single day. And it's rare that a guy has sort of that borderline – Three true outcomes sort of profile offensively and then blossoms into somebody that has contact. Typically, it's the contact and on base guys that, you know, blossom with contact quality as they sort of, you know, get stronger and more physical as they get into their mid to late 20s. The other thing with Henderson is he's a plus athlete. Um, the reports were always hey you know he's got enough range and arm to to handle shortstop but I really think he's a third baseman and the recent reporting this is even as as recently as the beginning of the season and coming out of spring training to I think this guy might have a shot to play shortstop or I think this is the shortstop long term Westberg's the third baseman I think might even been a direct quote that we have so it's It seems like the tide is even changing in that regard. So he's just really tightened up this super toolsy, loud explosive profile into a guy with all of this athleticism and the raw abilities, plus the baseball skills. Um, When we talk about a dark horse as a number one prospect, he probably isn't gonna be in the minors long enough. Maybe it's Henderson. I mean, he could stick up the middle at short. He's got the arm to handle third at worst, and he can still be a very, like a very, very good third baseman, which you know how valuable that is. Power, contact, and on base ability, he kind of hits all the boxes, you know. Um, so Henderson's a huge up arrow, and I, I could sit here and talk about him for another 10 minutes. I, he's one of my favorite prospects.
0: Yeah, he's been great all year. uh, And he's someone he jumped into the top 10. I'll let you go check out the midseason top 100 online to see exactly how high he rose. But this is a really good player. And I'm glad you mentioned this This is someone who you look at it absolutely has the combination of skills and performance to be the number one prospect in baseball and is someone that a lot of people think at least deserves to be in the conversation. And whether he's in the minors long enough to do so, we'll see. Uh, He's kind of hurt a little bit by as much as people love him, they still see Grayson ahead of him. And so By default, Grayson Rodriguez would be number one and him number two if they were the top two prospects in baseball, but uh, just a tremendously talented player. Another player who has really jumped up in the low minors, because again, Henderson's gone up to AAA now. He's continuing to hit there. He's getting closer. Someone who is in the lower levels but is moving up very, very, very quickly is Ricky Tiedemann, the Blue Jays left-hander. That was really interesting. I first got Ricky Tiedemann's name in the lead-up to the 2020 draft. He was a senior at Lakewood High School out here in the LA area in Southern California. And people loved the projection. They saw a big left-hander with a decent fastball, a great change-up, a breaking ball on the calm. But you just saw the physicality and that this guy was going to grow into more stuff and had a chance to be just a physical monster. Even though he was 88 to 91 at the time, there was going to come a day where he could sit 95, 96 with a filthy changeup, add power to that breaking ball, had field to pitch. People really liked him. And there were a lot of teams interested in drafting him in the shortened 2020 draft when it was only five rounds. But he had his number teams weren't willing to come up and meet it. It was just the combination of the shortened draft and teams wanting to make sure they were signing the guys they were gonna get. But what he did, and this was smart on his on his part, he was committed to San Diego State. He bounced out of that, went to junior college so he could be re-eligible in 2021. It was interesting last year, he wasn't as consistent as you would have liked to see, especially against junior college competition, but he was 18 years old. He was the same age as a lot of high school seniors playing in JUCO. Blue Jays took him the third round and what's been really fascinating is the projection that people thought would take a few years to materialize and there's always risk there that it never materializes. It came almost as soon as he was drafted. He went from 89-92 in JUCO to suddenly he's sitting 95 and tickling the upper 90s in short outings after they drafted him and this year the stuff has just exploded. Uh, Jeff, again, you've seen Tiedemann. You've seen what he looks like this looks like this year. You've done a lot of work on him, doing the Blue Jays list for us. I mean, what do you make of the jump he's taking? Because again, people saw this potential, but they thought it was three, four years away, not right now.
1: Yeah, and it's funny because he's one of those guys where, you know, if you looked at the fastball shape and some of the pitches that he had, he had a great slider the changeup, he had, you know, he had feel for it, Um, didn't always show command. And I think, you know, as you said, you know, the fastball velocity wasn't close to what it was. Um, This is one of those times where I think, you know, it's very different scouting college players or even professional players versus high school players or even, you know, a young guy like that in JUCO. Um, And just the, you know, ability to identify certain traits and characteristics that portend, you know, simple gains, whether that be in velocity or physicality. Um, I don't know specifically, um, you know, the sort of things that they did with Tiedemann, but, uh, you know, obviously the, you know, they didn't pitch him right out of the draft. Um, he put on good weight, added a significant amount of velocity. And we're sitting here now at, you know, the midpoint pretty much of July and he hasn't seen any of his stuff tick down. Um, this is a guy that sits 95 plus miles per hour um, from a low slot left-hander. Um, he might as well throw 100 from the right-hand side. It's just it's so rare that you see a left-handed starting pitcher that sits 95 to 97 <laughs> any given night um, with a lot of you know horizontal sort of shape to the fastball. It's not one of these super hoppy fastballs. But because of his arm angle and you know, the way that he delivers the, the ball and his release height, it's difficult to pick up out of the hand and has more action than maybe even the trackman numbers sort of kick up. Um, that's his worst pitch, I think, arguably. He's got a really sweepy slider that he throws in the low 80s um, that has 14 to 15 inches of, of, of sweep that has some depth to it as well. It's not a totally flat Frisbee. Um, and he can manipulate it when he needs to and he lands it in the strike zone then his best pitch is probably his changeup and there's a left-hander that's incredibly valuable to have and it's not one of these changeups that's going to like i always look back at a, a pitcher like joey wentz who just absolutely annihilated a ball hitters because he had a quality changeup and there just weren't a lot of guys that had seen a quality changeup before this is a quality changeup that's going to get swings and misses once he gets up to double A. I, I don't have many doubts about that. I think if you sit and you watch a particular team and you watch all, you know, watch a Vancouver series, they have good MILB TV and it's great because they're a West Coast team. You can catch them when you come home from an East Coast park. So I've watched a lot of Vancouver and you'll see the same guys at Zulueta or Palmer or Sam Robertsi, all good arms, all legitimate pitching prospects going against these lineups. And then you see Ricky Cheatham in. And against some of the more polished bats, you know, in the Northwest league, he's making them look really foolish with that changeup good right-handed hitters that hit lefties well. Um, and I think that's what's so unique about him is he has this power and the physicality and the stuff that, you know, um, let's say the eyewash side of it with pitching that you can identify just by showing up to the ballpark and looking at the radar gun, throw strikes, he mixes his pitches well and he has quality secondaries to play off of the fastball, that this is a guy that projects as you know, a potential front-line starter. I don't think that we say that very often about pitching prospects, especially guys who are 19, 20 years old. But you know, I think Tiedemann has that sort of potential upside when you just look at he checks all of those boxes, three pitches, power, you know the physicality side of it um and some unique deception which i think is something that you need as a separator versus
0: guys who just have good stuff and throw hard and throw strikes
1: because there's guys like that too that don't necessarily miss the bats
0: the comparison for tiedemann for a while now since high school was sean Manaya, and i think he's surpassed that and sean Manaya's is a dang good pitcher who's been a you know number two three starter on some playoff teams but uh, yeah, no, he's been super impressive and it's just it crazy to me because I, I saw him at Lakewood High School. I saw him uh, pitching for Golden West. And I mean, it was, again, it was it was good, but it was, you know, sit in the low 90s, touch a 93, 94. The thought that he is now sitting at 95 plus blows my mind, but there you go. Modern pitching development for you. Uh, two guys who were not on the list at all and jumped onto the top 100 real quick when I hit on Gavin Stone, right-hander with the Dodgers, James Wood, outfooted with the Padres. Stone's the guy that people are rave, raving about. Agents, scouts, executives, uh, people are texting me about him. You know, it was funny. I saw him last year pitching at Ranch Cucamonga, college guy in low A, but you saw, hey, it's pretty good fastball, 93-96. Breaking ball was okay, but didn't throw a single changeup because he didn't need to. And he really didn't start throwing one until he got out to high A last year. And it was like, okay, that's a pretty good pitch. But but last year, a lot of the scouts who saw him said he's probably a reliever just because he only really showed two pitches. Well, this year, the fastball velocity is up, the breaking ball is more powerful, and he's showing a changeup that's getting plus plus grades. All of a sudden, it's three pitches. I mean, some people are putting three pluses. At the very least, it's three above average pitches with plus control and just, again, good athlete, holds his stuff. He's someone that, really has jumped up this year as, as a real potential weapon in the Dodgers rotation moving forward. Then we have James Wood, who last year at some points was considered a potential first-round pick, had a really, really, really rough season at IMG Academy, a lot of strikeouts, a lot of swings and misses. Padres still took him in the second round, paid him above slot, gave him first-round money, and that decision is looking very, very wise. He was super impressive in the complex league last year, but what really stood out to me seeing him at like Elsinore bunch this year, first of all, he's huge. He's 6'7", 240, and he runs really, really well. He actually plays a pretty good center field, and the power is ungodly. But those are all things we kind of knew. What surprised me pleasantly is he sees pitches really, really well. He tracks them deep. He works counts He recognizes pitches out of the hand. He holds up, doesn't chase. And to be honest, that was the most shocking thing to me just based off his reputation last year. And one of the things the Padres have talked about is they think he was pressing last year. He had draftitis, was swinging from his shoes, trying to hit everything a mile and impress people. Now that he's in pro ball, he's settled, he's calmer. I mean, it's really impressive. There's not many guys in this league who you can see them Tracking pitches all the way to the plate. I mean, he can really look over a baseball, which is something no one would have said about James Wood at this time a year ago. But you take the physicality and the tools, you add the approach. You know, he's hitting 300 plus. It's not a fluke. He's got nearly as many walks as strikeouts. It's not a fluke. I've seen him do it against tough lefties. I've seen him do it against older pitchers who know how to pitch a little bit. He's been impressive. Jeff. There are a couple guys who have fallen a little bit, and one of them I want to talk about is Jack Leiter, who was the number two overall pick in last year's draft, obviously very, very famous being Al Leiter's son, uh, an ace at Vanderbilt, a lot of publicity surrounding him. The Rangers sent him straight to A this year, an aggressive assignment to be sure, uh, but he struggled pretty considerably. And when you compare him to, say, a guy like Max Meyer, who also went straight out to A out of the 2020 draft, Meyer did really, really well as we sit here recording this. Jack Leiter has a 6.30 ERA. He's averaging more than five walks per nine. He's really struggled to throw strikes consistently and keep batters off the bases. And on top of that, he's allowing a hit per inning. He's fallen a bit in our top 100. I guess I have to ask, how concerned are you?
1: Yeah, you know, I'm not totally, totally jumping off the ship here with Leiter. Um, I think it's an incredibly difficult assignment. And I know that it's like, hey, double-A, top college starter. He got the money that he got. Um, this is a guy that's supposed to go to a higher level fairly quickly. Understand. He had never pitched professionally prior to this. And pitching in that ballpark in the Texas league with the other ballparks he has to pitch in aren't exactly forgiving. Um, so I think that you know some of that is playing into it. His fastball command hasn't been good. Um, The shape hasn't been as good as it had been in college. Um, He's also doing some things well. I think that the secondaries have taken a step forward. Uh, The slider in particular has gone from a projectable above average pitch to, I think, potentially a plus pitch. I actually think it's his best pitch right now based on the numbers, the results, if you watch the starts. I think he'd be better served to scrapping – the curveball a little bit, leaning in really hard to the slider and using that almost, you know, one for one with the fastball and mixing mixing in the changeup or curveball when he needs to sort of give a second look to a left hander. But for me, he's a guy that you know I don't want to bang him to you know knock him down the list too hard uh, because I do still think that there are some elements there that could come together. It's just a matter of him sort of learning how to sort of pitch around the park and, you know, the perils of being a high fastball driven guy in an an environment like that. And I think part of that is leaning in on the slider and learning to sequence a little bit better because this was a guy as an amateur, even in the highest level of college baseball, who, you know, the command wasn't always great, but he was able to sort of overwhelm hitters with, a really, really good fastball and then a variety of different looks for the secondaries where I think he's developed more into a guy, like I said, who I think needs to throw the slider a little bit more, the fastball a little bit less and sort of figure out where his sequencing is going to be with the other two pitches because, um, just credit to him, I do want to look at the positive here too. I think Leiter has made some tremendous strides with that slider, uh, but the fastball is backed up and, and he really hasn't shown that he – knows how to pitch the pitchability side of it really hasn't been all that strong with lighter. And he's never really had to be that strong in that element just simply because the stuff has always been so good, whether it was playing, you know, New Jersey high school midweek for a few weeks back in 2020 uh, or in the SEC with Vanderbilt.
0: Yeah. We'll see if he's able to turn it around. I think what's been most concerning is it's getting worse, not better. His last five starts, his ERA is up over nine. Uh, opponents hitting 302, 438, 587 against him. So we'll see what adjustments he makes. Another pitcher who dropped away is is Cade Cavalli. Uh, He was a futures gamer last year. He'll be back in the futures game this year. He's sort of an opposite deal. Uh, He's at AAA, and he also moved very, very quickly last year. He got off to a really, really rough start. His first seven starts, he had an ERA of 762 He's actually been much better recently. His last seven starts, by comparison, the RA is down to 2.31. Um, there's still some concern about how the fastball actually plays. He's one of those guys who throws very, very hard, but guys have always seemed to hit him a little bit. When you look at Cade Kovale right now, what does he stack up as? Because, again, the stuff is there, but consistency has been a little bit of an issue, as well as just general, is his stuff more hittable than it should be?
1: Yeah, and I think, you know, you you, bring up a good point, and I know I had referenced it in an article recently. Um, but his last seven starts, he's really turned a corner. He's really only had a couple of rough outings, really only one that was really, really poor quality. Um, but you've seen him he's throwing more strikes <laughs> more consistently. He's living in the zone a little bit more, and he's challenging hitters with his stuff. Um And I think that that's, you know, a big reason uh, for his success. I think, you know, for a little bit, he kind of got away from it. It seemed like he was super fastball dominant early in starts, and he was kind of sequencing in the breaking ball when he needed to. Then, like, the second time through, he would start to get cute and, you know, sort of waste pitches early in counts. And I think he's gotten away from that again, and it's allowed everything to play up. I mean, because this is a guy that, as a starter, sits – 95 and 97 miles per hour um it's got late life in action um he mixes a high 80s slider that has you know tighter movement but you know comes in pretty hard if you've seen that pitch and he's got a really good curveball he's got a mid 80s curveball with some depth which you don't see that frequently and has some feel for the changeup as well uh we'll get it in the zone Um, and the shape isn't bad. It's got some hard running life. So he's got like a really tremendous pitch mix. Um, It's just a matter of him being able to deploy those weapons as he needs to. And it seems like he's figuring that out. So I know we had gotten some negative feedback on him, um, I think early into the season. And it seems like he's turning a corner a little bit and, and starting to, you know, sort of learn how to, hit the right spots the right zones i know that was always a big thing for blake snell for example when these guys these pitchers that have the stuff first sort of struggle for the first time and really struggle and can't get over sort of having you know stuff that moves a ton like it's tough to command that cavalli to me seems like a guy that's sort of learning where his slider needs to be landed like the zones of the zone it's not Command isn't about hitting like a particular pinpoint spot. That'd be great if everyone could do that. It's really about getting it in the right zones, keeping it out of the trouble zones. He's doing that with the fastball. He's doing that with the slider, with the curveball, and to a lesser extent the change up. And, you know, the results are follow. He's throwing more strikes and he's getting guys to to swing more frequently at pitches and swing and miss. And I think ultimately that's going to drive his success. So for me, I still think that he kind of teeters on this edge of like it could all click and he could be a great number two and, you know, on a very good team. Maybe he wears that ace label a little bit or he could be a really frustrating 3-4 where some nights he has the best stuff in the world and he's unhittable and you love watching him pitch. And then the next night he could pitch two good innings and come out in the third and give up five. And really struggle with his command and you know if he can't land his breaking stuff then he's starting to really sort of cheat with the fastball and you know you end up in with a lot of center cut fastballs that way and center cut fastballs in the major leagues regardless of how good they are they tend to get hit a long way so you know i i I feel like he teeters on that edge and really it just comes down to his ability to execute can he continue to take these steps forward and know when to throw his particular pitch and where to throw it to get the kind of reactions he needs in a given situation. And I think that's ultimately what separates, you know, the great pitchers from guys who just have really good stuff and have good major league careers, but never sort of take that step forward. Sometimes it happens to guys when they're 29 or 30 years old, because it's a tough step to take forward. So are we seeing that now with Cavalli or are we just seeing him round into A more usable form. I think that's kind of what the question is that remains. But it's certainly been a nice string of progress, and it's been more than just a blip on the radar. Seven or you know six or seven, eight starts is
0: is a good chunk of time in the season. It's always good to see guys get back moving in the right direction. Jeff, we kind of have hit midseason again. We're a little past midseason for a lot of leagues, but just kind of as a midseason check-in, and a lot of these guys are on the top one hundred. Who's the best player you would say you've seen this year? Best prospect, I should say.
1: Best player that I've seen so far, uh, I think Francisco Alvarez would certainly be in this category. Um, the other one is, is Ezekiel Tovar. Um, you know, live and in person, uh, I, I was just so impressed by the, the defense, number one. He's one of the best shortstop defenders I've probably seen in the minor leagues as long as I've been really paying attention over the last handful of years uh, to all the gory details of everything when I'm at a minor league game. Um, He's not the loudest bat you'll see, you know, bat wise, it's probably Alvarez. And I don't think there's much question about that. Um, But he makes a lot of contact takes good at bats. Uh, You really can't sneak much by him in the strike zone. Um, And there is, there is power there. And there's power there without him having a huge hulking body or selling out for the power, which I think is a really encouraging sign uh, because there could probably be some tweaks that could be made. There's going to be some physical strength that's going to be added, though he has the kind of frame that I don't think by adding 15 to 20 pounds of sort of lean muscle, he has the ability to do that, that it's really going to back him up as an athlete or a shortstop because he's pretty thin. Um, Just an overall really exciting player. You know, I don't know if he's going to be this superstar multi-time all-star but i do think he's going to be a really good everyday shortstop that has some value with the bat um that maybe teeters on that underrated sort of um label versus what he actually is but i just think he's a very good all-around player where you know there might be seasons where francisco alvarez who the other guy that was in this conversation may you know hit 30 home runs and hit 280 and Um, regardless of the defense that's a pretty valuable player if he is catching even part-time but I do think that overall just Tovar was so impressive and they're really I'd like to see him walk a little bit more but for his approach and the things that he does well and how old he is at the levels he's at um, I was just really overall impressed by by Tovar's game.
0: Yeah, we talk about guys taking steps forward year over year, Ricky Tiedemann being one, and Tovar is the same. I got to see him a bunch with Fresno last year, and he was just really good defensive shortstop. A lot of guys at low A, they're flashy, but they're not reliable. He was super reliable. It's just little things, you know, in terms of cutoffs, positioning himself, everything that you need to do, the little things to be a truly great shortstop he did in addition to making every play. Glove, hands, range, arm, it was all there. And then with the bat, you know, it was one of those things where he had more thump than you thought for his size. He hit some long fly balls. He just didn't have that wiry strength yet. So it was a lot of fly balls to the track when he got out of Fresno, which is very hitter friendly. I saw in places like Inland Empire and Rancho Cucamonga the ball doesn't travel as well, but you saw the ability, you saw the athleticism that, that thump in the bat stayed with me for his size. Uh, just a really aggressive hitter. So the question was, okay, Will that aggressiveness be exploited? And, and what kind of strength gains are gonna come? Because again, some guys put on a lot of strength, you know, some don't. And he did, he put on the right kind of strength, as you mentioned, and he's still aggressive, but he's just such a talented hitter. He's still able to make consistent contact. We've seen everything jump this year. It's really cool to see. Uh, my best player I talked about on earlier was Jordan Lawler. Again, the combination of the explosiveness, the athleticism, the ability to adjust, there's power, there's speed, there's just there's just so many things to like there. And again, I, I thought it was interesting how he really plays up to the moment when the lights turn on, that's when he's at his best, and that's important. That's what you want to see. There's a lot of guys out there who are 5 o'clock hitters and pregame standouts, and the lights turn on, and they don't know what they're doing. They can't actually play the game that well. Um, he's the opposite. So it's what you want to see, and, and he's a very, very talented player. I'm eager to see what he does at higher levels. Jeff, on the flip side, who's the most disappointing top 100 prospect you've seen this year?
1: Oh, I hate doing this to guys, Um, especially this early in their pro careers. But I I think it was Henry Davis, and I I do know that he was coming off of injury, so I want to put that out there. Um, But I saw him a couple of weeks ago. Uh, He did hit for me. Um, Had a couple of doubles in one of the games I saw. uh, Made hard contact. There's certainly bat-to-ball skills there. I like the swing. Um, do you think it's a little stiff and you know, there's not any projection left in the body. This is kind of what the power is. I could kind of see him being like a second division, regular DH, Like that's what I came away with thinking. And I'm also not a professional scout. So um, <laughs> I want to put that out there, you know, uh, take it with a grain of salt. If you wish, if you like my opinions, then you can listen up. But uh, defensively, It was bad, and it was bad in a way that, Kyle, you know, I've gone to a lot of Cape Cod League games recently after being on Pro Bowl for a bit, Um, and the difference between his catching ability and anyone I would have seen in the Cape Cod League, I would have thought, I thought to myself, put it in this context. If I had seen him catching Christian Little at Kituit, I would have been like pretty rough behind the plate today, huh? Like, can he throw? Um, the framing was bad. He caught Quinn Priester one of those nights. a lot of stuff that was in the dirt he really had trouble with. Um, and it almost seemed like he was avoiding throwing on multiple he, he took a mulligan on like four throws, maybe. Like there were times where like it, other guys would have at least made the attempt and he just didn't even try. And I mean, Quinn Priester throws 93 to 97 miles per hour, you know, over the course of the start. So it wasn't like the ball was getting to the plate all that slowly. Um, The catching was the part that really stuck with me because it it, it it wasn't good. Um, what's, what's I concerning is to be for power, but I just don't think it's like, it's not Francisco Alvarez. I don't care if he can catch. I don't feel that way with Henry Davis.
0: Yeah, it's interesting. The, the defense has been criticized pretty strongly for a while now, including even in spring training. Um, there was a sense that, hey, Him versus Andy Rodriguez. Andy Rodriguez is the vastly better catcher. There's no question. Um, But it's interesting. You mentioned Henry Davis. Whenever we put out a a new list, you know, scouts will typically text us. You know, why is this guy on the list? Why is this not on the list? The very first text I got, the second it came out, is Henry Davis at 44 with four question marks. It's not that he's too high. He simply doesn't belong on the top 100. He's strong and has plus bat speed and big raw power. But the defense is bad. And as you said, it's stiff. I mean, there are evaluators out there who do not think he's a top 100 prospect. And the final line was that's a really bad 1 1 in terms of a first overall pick. So he's in AA. He's early in his career. We'll see. But the early reviews from scouts, the early reviews, what you're seeing uh, are not good. Um, On my end, Shea Langoliers, I'll pick another catcher. It's just not a good swing, and he's not going to hit. It's something that evaluators have talked about for a while, seeing it for myself. Look at his home road splits. He's crushing the ball in Vegas, away from Vegas. He's hitting 203, 324, 348. It's just a bad swing. that's not going to make contact. You know, he's patient. He has some strength. He has some power, but he's going to be an easy out for major leaguers. There's a lot of holes in the swing. It's stiff. It's a bad path. It's, it's just not going to work. And the other thing is, we heard all about his defense. Sean Murphy is a vastly better defender than he is. And Sean Murphy, to be clear, is a gold glove defender. But I saw Murphy all the way up the minors, seeing what he does in the majors. Murphy's in better shape. He's quicker. He's more flexible. The arm is every bit as good, and it's more accurate. Shea Langeleers was my most disappointing. I think we're looking at a backup catcher, defense first type, and the defense is more fine than gold glove level. Um, I saw a lot of things that concerned me a little bit in terms of mobility and arm accuracy. So we'll see what he does. But I I think the A's this Matt Olson trade is turning out to be a disaster for them. Christian Pache can't hit. We knew he couldn't hit and he's continuing to show he can't hit. And I think with Shea Langoliers, they're not, they're not getting the guy who's going to replace Sean Murphy. They're going to get a guy who's a significant downgrade from Sean Murphy on both sides of the ball. That's my guy. Jeff, to wrap up here on a positive note, cause we do want to do want to make sure and do that. Who's the guy you're watching for a second half turnaround, a guy who's maybe struggled a little bit, but you still believe in.
1: Um, my guy is a tough one. I feel like this is like a Homer show and it, I, I'm not a Red Sox Homer in the least, but it's, uh, it's Nick York. Um, the reports that I had gotten on Nick York were pretty encouraging. Um, some things that i think i had noticed just digging in a little bit in the swing um and this scout sort of confirmed some of that And he went into more depth and sort of discussed the fact that greenville has these dimensions they have that mini monster out in left field um you know nick york is playing at that park with a bunch of guys who are dead pull hitters who have seen a ton of success um, you know, as, as right-handed hitters hitting to that wall, and that's not Nick York's game. It's not his swing. He is a contact-first guy. Quality of contact, plate approach, and the power comes second. And I think everyone sort of thought quality's there. He's a smart hitter. The power is going to come. It's going to blossom. He had for some power in games, but I think you know the prevailing sort of um, belief on him is that the power would eventually come once he got 25 26 you know and was already a really advanced hitter well this year he's chased the power and it's just gone the opposite direction the other skills have sort of tanked if you look at the home road splits on york he's been a much more productive player on the road versus what he's been at home and and this scout was going through some of the numbers even uh, as he sort of jumped onto the system while we were chatting and was saying like you know you go and you you take a look at His average exit velocity at home versus on the road, and it's actually higher on the road. So I think even some of that stuff, the underlying data, is sort of backing the fact that I think York will figure it out. They'll get him his swing fixed, and 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 he'll be back to being you know one of the better hitters in the leagues.
0: Yeah, he showed it's in there last year, and and seeing what adjustments he makes, and again, getting back to his approach is is going to be really key. Um, for me, it's Noelvi Marte in the Mariners system. And one of the things with Marte, I'll just be frank, he was getting absolutely crushed by everyone earlier in the year. His conditioning, his effort level, his swing, his throwing, his defense, it was not good. The reviews were consistently bad. Even the Mariners internally acknowledged that the ceiling had been lowered and that it, the dynamic five-tool shortstop they hoped for was just not going to happen. But he started to turn it around. He's been swinging a hot bat of late, and he actually is moving much better at shortstop. And one of the things that happened even last year with Marte at Modesto, and I saw it firsthand, he's very, very inconsistent. He will have a month where he looks locked in with his approach, he plays hard, he is hitting for average power and looking like a dynamic five tool shortstop. And then he'll have other months where he looks lost at the plate, he's chasing everything, his arm is doing things that make you go, what's wrong? Is he hurt? And he's just not focused on his footwork and and not consistent. And again, that was the case last year, even during his breakout year, kind of pull out the example. In May, he looked amazing. In July, he looked like a non-prospect. The numbers bear that out. Then he got a little bit better in August. And we're seeing that this year again, it was all bad early, but it's been better recently. And I still think there's enough talent here. You don't give up on it. It's just more power-hitting third baseman than everyday shortstop, but still a big leaguer. All right, Jeff, I think that's going to do it for our Top 100 midseason Update podcast. Any final thoughts?
1: No, thanks, uh, everybody, for listening, and
0: thanks for subscribing and and reading the list. We appreciate it. All right, everyone, that'll do it for another Baseball America podcast. Go ahead and give us a review on iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher, whatever platform you're listening on. We'd love to hear from you. For Jeff Ponce, I'm Kyle Glazer. Thanks for listening. Stay safe, everybody.